You're listening to the Christian Humanist Podcast, a philosophical, critical, confessional, interstitial, theological, and always delectable conversation between Christian intellectuals. Your hosts are three Christian college professors, Michael Farmer, David Grubbs, and Nathan Gilmore. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is Nathan Gilmore, Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. And I want to welcome my co-host, first of all, uh, from St. Bonifacius, Minnesota, Christian Humanist Headquarters. I want to welcome Michael Farmer. How are you doing this morning, Michael? I'm pretty good, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well. And from, I've forgotten the name of the town, at McPherson, Kansas. <laughs> McPherson, Kansas. <laughs> It's not that forget. Well, it, it, well, it wouldn't be as forgettable if you'd ever been there. It, it's early in the morning when we record this, folks. From McPherson, Kansas, uh, you've already heard from him, so now let's introduce him. David Grubbs, how are you doing, David? Uh, pretty well. Very good, very good. All of us uh, live in towns with odd names. I mean, mine's the oddest. St. Bonifacius wins. But Franklin Springs is not a usual name. Admi- no, I'm it's dem- not. It's not. But it I'm- is named after an actual geographic feature. So, oh, that's true. <laughs> and the founding father. And and McPherson presumably. is McPherson is named after uh, the town that it's the son of, right? It's the son of Ferson. N- no. No, it's the son oh, of McFer. Oh, oh, I see. <laughs> no, the, it, it's named after a Civil War general. Oh, all right, all right. For the, never for the Confederacy? Here, but, huh? For the Confederacy or the Union? Uh, Union, actually. Well, there you go. There you go. <laughs> At any rate, uh, we have started to put some content back on the Christian Humanist blog. Hopefully that'll get rolling now that the school year is back upon us. There are show notes uh, for the dissertation episode that you've listened to already. And there, there are a couple Bible posts. So I'm going to start trying to get those up more regularly. Uh, also, I'm going to try, because I actually wrote it in my faculty development plan this year, and my department chair approved it, which I feel like I did something sneaky there. I actually wrote the uh, blog and the podcast into that as faculty development activities. So <laughs> I awesome. suppose I got that going for me. Uh Actually, there is, by definition, no listener feedback about the dissertation episode uh, because we're actually recording this a few minutes before I put that online. So unless someone has demonstrated some mad hacking skills and gotten the episode ahead of time, uh, it will be impossible for anyone to have commented on it. Am I right? Well, unless sometime this week they invent time-traveling email. Dude. (laughs) Worst movie ever. Yeah. <laughs> Turns out sometime last week a comment will appear that says first by Marty McFly. Do you do you remember in the nineties when every action movie had to have the scene of somebody furiously typing on the computer and that was supposed to be exciting? Yeah, yeah, I do. I do. Yeah. Well it's still a 
<laughs> when well, I, I, and, and I, actually, I've seen this fairly recently, but the uh, the scene with the tense music, the security guards coming around the corner while the loading bar proceeds from left to right. Yeah. <laughs> just like just like all the uh, other loading bars. Yeah, yeah. But you know, with the, with a good soundtrack, even a loading bar can be exciting. I guess. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe not. Approve. There you go. Well, we are talking about something a little bit more exciting today. Uh, this is going to be an episode that I, I'll, I'll go ahead and confess up front that I wrote uh, in honor of my son, Micah, who is a pirate maniac. Uh, we're going to be talking about pirates today. So to leap right in, Michael, um, my students over at Emmanuel College never believe me when I tell them uh, but the word pirate actually has Greek roots. It's the same Greek verb that the New Testament uses when Jesus is tested in the wilderness by Satan. Uh, so the pirates are the ones who put to the test the crew of a merchant vessel. Uh, and the problem of shipborne raiders is at least as old as philosophy as we know it. Uh, Michael, talk to us a little bit about a couple notable pirate sightings from the Greek and Roman periods. And how did they imagine pirates differently from how we do? Nathan, I think we can actually assume that piracy is as old as seafaring. It seems like ever since people have been putting goods out on the ocean, other people have been stealing it in daring fashion. And it actually goes back, our records of it go back far before our records of philosophy. We have records of pirates from the 14th century before Christ in the Mediterranean. So, I mean, you're, you're, really, uh, you're, you're really dealing with something as ancient basically is human civilization itself. Um, a whole bunch of ancient peoples had pirates. The Greeks had them, of course. The Romans had them. Phoenicians had pirates. Um, and as you mentioned, we get the word pirate from the Latin word pirata, which comes from the Greek word, and I don't speak Greek, so you can correct my pronunciation. Piratia, is that right? Yes, yes. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, that word comes from the word pyro, which means trial or attempt. And I did just a little bit of brief linguistic research, which means I Googled around. And uh, I found out that this word descends from a number of earlier languages, Proto-Indo-European and all that stuff. And, and it, the term originally yeah. com comes not from trial, but from danger or risk. So it, it, it does have the sense of trial, but it also has the sense of a particularly dangerous trial. Um, piracy seems to have begun the way you would have expected it to begin. Uh, it was the attempt of desperate and poor men to gain wealth. But even in the ancient world, I mean, we're talking centuries and centuries ago, it quickly became less the action of a desperate man and more like a demonstration of bravery in the face of danger. Mm -hmm. And so, as it turns out, I think Pliny talks about this, people who were already rich would take up piracy just for the glory of it. Mm -hmm. And um, in fact, some sources seem to indicate that piracy was not even considered ignoble for a really long time. So uh, like in book nine of the Odyssey, Odysseus tells the Cyclops that he and his, win, he and his men rather went to Ismarus, and he says, there I sacked the city, killed the men, but, for the, but as for the wives and plunder, that rich hall we dragged away from the place, we shared it round so no one, not on my account, will go deprived of his fair share of spoils. Um, that is obviously piracy, and in fact it prefigures the very democratic atmosphere of pirate ships um, that 
comes up later in the history of piracy, as I'm sure we're going to talk about in a moment. So mm-hmm. even though we think of piracy as a phenomenon of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, it definitely has very ancient roots. It's, it's one of the earliest behaviors of human civilization, apparently. Um, and in fact, uh, many of the ancient accounts... Would, would you call with, it the oldest profession? Uh, maybe second <laughs> oldest. <laughs> Although All right, second oldest. Second they're, oldest. they're related, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Piracy was invented so that they could, you know, actually have some money wherewith to, uh, you know. Yeah. Oh, we're all going to get fired. Anyway, sorry, Michael. Carry on. Oh, that was all ahead. So you actually picked a good time to make your crass joke. All right. Very good. Very good. Uh, David, are, are there any uh, ancient pirates that you'd want to slap on there? Um. Well, did we did we toss in that St. Patrick was kidnapped by pirates? No, we didn't. Go ahead and say a bit about that. Yeah, well, he was. Um, <laughs> yeah, in uh, the the confession of Patrick, uh, one of two writings that come down to us to this day that that uh, the, the the consensus is pretty much yeah this is this is this is the actual Saint Patrick. Um, he talks about uh, being kidnapped and then sold as a uh, kidnapped from Britain and then sold as a slave by uh, sort of. Sea, seagoing marauders uh, at the mm-hmm. time, um, which you know, obviously they're not plundering gold from the Spanish main, um, but they are, uh, you know, they are they are seeking to acquire by force uh, such capital as is readily available. In this case, people, right, and right, then, and then selling it off, um, and that's that's how he uh, that's how Patrick ended up in Ireland for years as a slave. And then, uh, after escaping, he la- he later returns. So you know. Now, when did he dye all the beer green, David? Um. Yeah, he did. <laughs> um, that was one of the ten plagues of you know <laughs> County Cork. <laughs> <laughs> when he stood before the Irish Pharaoh. <laughs> the other was when he turned the firstborn into a pile of shamrocks. Nice, nice. And uh, just to yeah. add one more in between uh, Ulysses and Patrick, uh, Julius Caesar famously yep. was kidnapped by pirates. Uh, uh, they, yeah. They demanded 20,000 denarii of his family, and uh, he famously said, 20,000, I'm worth 50,000 easily. <laughs> That's Julius Caesar. Yeah. Yep, yep. Didn't he tell them some kind of variation on a theme of I'll be back? Yeah, and he was. He uh, actually assembled a small navy, hunted them down, and killed all of them. So, you know, he had the witty line and the bloody massacre. How has that not been made into a movie? Well, now that we've just put it on the air, Michael, we... (laughs) Liam Neeson could play Julius Caesar? (laughs) Yeah. Probably was made into a, new, a movie in Italy back in the 1960s when they <laughs> yeah, turned pretty go. much every story that had anything to do with a Roman or a Greek into the sword and sandals epic. Yeah. You know. Oh, and see, I, I was thinking they adapted into a Western and uh, Clint Eastwood was dubbed over. <laughs> when, now, when does Julius Caesar talk to the empty chair where Pompey sits? Pompey. Oh. <laughs> Sadly, uh, Julius Caesar died before he reached that stage in his career. Yeah. Oh, heavens, oh, heavens. Well, at any rate, jumping way forward, well past the uh, Clint Eastwood jokes, 
into the 17th century AD, David, this is what most of us think of when we think of pirates. Uh, this is the wild world of colonial politics, privateering under the semi-official but deniable support of one of the European <laughs> crowns, the theft of plundered Aztec gold and Inca silver. Um, give us just a, a fast, a few minutes about some of the big names of this era, the place of Queen Anne's War and all of it, and why these figures in particular become our pirates, our folk heroes, instead of just plain old robbers. Mm. Wheel, uh, as uh, we've already been saying, piracy is you know old as old as people in boats. As long as there was another guy with gold in a boat, there was a guy in another boat with a bunch of guys who wanted to take it. Right. Um. So it was it was not a new thing when we got to uh, what has been called the golden age of piracy, um, which actually the golden age of piracy proper was was actually fairly short. Um, uh, it, it refers to a time in basically the the late 1600s to the early 1700s, though some of the famous names crop up before that period, and then you know it continued on afterwards. But if you're talking about a a Caribbean, in particular, absolutely dominated by pirates, you're looking at like a 34 year window mm-hmm. at uh, at the end of the the 17th century, beginning of the 18th. Funny how that works, but, isn't it? Isn't it, David? I mean, it's the same thing with the cowboys. There, there weren't real cowboys for more than forty, fifty years either. And, uh, yeah, they, they 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 kind of move out of their their narrow slice of history and uh, into legend pretty quickly. Yeah, it it is interesting how these narrow little bits of time end up, you know, I, I guess punching above their weight class. In terms of the the amount of time they take in our storytelling, right? Um, well, uh, you you started off with uh, references to privateering. I'll start there. Um, Spain uh, Spain stakes a claim to um, pretty much the whole new world, um, though they don't have the uh, the boots on the ground to actually enforce that. Um, you know, France and England have. Uh, uh, also, at this time, you know, started started staking claims, particularly in North America. Um, but they find out that North America is the less awesome America because it doesn't include Incas and Aztecs dripping with gold. It's you know got like turkeys and such. <laughs> um, not that turkeys are bad, but they wanted gold. So uh, the. The Spanish galleons are carrying gold back and forth between the New World and Spain. In fact, uh, Spain's entire financial system is now becoming based on uh, the gold of, of uh, the, the Central and South American native in, uh, empires. And the English and the Irish, or the English and the Dutch and the French, decide that they want a piece, and uh, so you get. Uh, yeah, again, the, the plausible deniability of these uh, private enterprises, uh, private enterprises that in fact were uh, financed like you know small businesses. They were like small business entrepreneurs who would take, uh, who would collect money from shareholders and then go out and try to find you know Spaniards to rob and then bring it back home, and it would get divvied up amongst the crew and the shareholders, and usually the crown would take a piece. Um, so we have, 
I, I was actually kind of surprised by this as I was researching it that this was going on as early as Henry VIII. Actually, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, Henry VIII had his privateers. There were actually English privateers still going after Spanish ships under the reign of Mary Tudor, which that seems awfully odd, but apparently it just kept on going. And then we get to famous guys like Francis Drake. My uh, illustrious ancestor, Francis Drake. Yes, Francis Drake, yeah, Um, in the time of Queen Elizabeth. An interesting character. Apparently he was... um, Motivated not only by gold but by religion, uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs was his favorite book ever, and uh, according to some of the accounts, has something to do with the ferocity with which he attacked Span- the Spanish. Oh, um, he was getting revenge for all the Protestant martyrs. Um, that's he seems to have thought of it that way. Um, when you consider that in the generation before Drake, an awful lot of uh, struggle between piracy, uh, struggle between uh, the the Spanish and the pirates, in the generation before Drake, a lot of those pirates were uh, Huguenot um, refugees from from France. Hmm. Um, uh, a lot of that went down in uh, in Florida. In fact, Saint Augustine, Florida, is a the the site of what had been a Huguenot settlement that, that got wiped out by the Spaniards very famous, very famously. Um, now granted those Huguenot were also pirates. So, you know, (laughs) um, nonetheless, um, so yeah, during the, during these, the struggles between, you know, Spain and England, um, England didn't have a big old Navy on the water. What they had was a bunch of, uh, a bunch of privateers, a bunch of, you know, entrepreneurial, <laughs> this entrepreneurial naval, uh, Navy with, uh, you know, every ship is a small business and, and war and plunder are their trade. Right. So, I mean, this is a, a step beyond just plain old mercenaries. I mean, this is, I mean, like you said, I mean, this is something that returns a profit. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And England actually got a pretty nasty reputation for it. Just about everybody else in in Europe were they they were pretty grumpy about England's privateers <laughs> for um, some reason. And apparently, well, apparently, rightly so. Um, when Drake sacked Saint Drake ended up sacking Saint Augustine, and when he did that, the Bank of Spain collapsed. Um, there was another bank. I can't remember which country it was. Another another European bank um, also collapsed because too much of their holdings were in Spanish debt, and the Bank of Germany um, refused to extend Spain any more credit. So basically, Drake just stepped in and sacked a city and overturned, uh, you know, the European economy. <laughs> David, do you- have some sense of what on earth the Spanish were thinking in in staking their entire economy on plundered Inca gold? Because I mean that seems like that seems like a very very bad economic decision to me. Uh, they were cocky, you know. They were the ones with all the really 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 big ships. I mean every every number one world power thinks it's always going to be the number one world power. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, pir- yeah. pirates kind of undo that. Yeah. Pirates. 
That's 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 what they do. They're there to de- to deflate the pretensions of empire. I mean, it's really true, right? I mean, the barbarians did the same thing to Rome. Mm-hmm. And barbarians yeah. are land pirates. Or pirates are sea barbarians. <laughs> you know, um, you know. See, we 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 we'll need to we'll need to skip ahead a bit because we 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 just kept having pirates, um, and they continued to be useful. Um. Uh. Well, Queen Anne, um, of of, of England, and you know, you know, years after Queen, uh, apparently, uh, England English queens just like to sick pirates on people. Um, <laughs> you know, Queen Anne decides that you know she wants England for, or she wants North America for England, not for France, and so she begins waging war on French colonies. Um, in that region, and uh, give uh, it basically licenses a bunch of privateers in uh, in the the Caribbean and the North Atlantic to uh, to help carry that off. But then when it's over, it's hard to it's hard to convince a privateer to stop. Yeah, which, so which was part of the terms of the treaty that ended that war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So a lot of the more famous pirates uh, of of that sort of late golden age, so to speak, of piracy, you know, people like Blackbeard um, were actually, you know, privateers in Queen Anne's War who just decided that they weren't going to stop, which is probably why Blackbeard's uh, ship was called Queen Anne's Revenge. So, yeah, you think? <laughs> you think? Probs. Anyway, how did they become heroes? Um, I think we have Daniel Defoe to blame for that. Mm-hmm. Um, because he wrote his big awesome book of pirates. Um, that's not the actual title. Um, but uh, the actual title is more boring. Uh, it's the general history of the robberies and murders of the most notorious pirates. Man, they but love their his, long titles in the 18th century, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah, it's Daniel Defoe's Rainy Day Book of Pirates. <laughs> the big golden book of pirates. Es- essentially, and this is this is, you know, there there were uh there were ballads about some of them just as there are ballads about, you know, highwaymen and other kind of, you know, notorious criminal characters um in England. But he put them all together and turned them into one big, turned it into one big narrative, and so a lot of, the, I mean, most of the pirates that are still remembered in any way today, um, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard, um, you know, uh, Anne Bonny, um, uh, Black Bart, uh, Calico Jack, uh, you know. M- most of the figures that you know that come to mind when you're looking at historical pirates, they were part of Defoe's narrative, Defoe's illustrated narrative, which was which was hugely popular. And if you find some kind of popular book on pirates these days, it's pretty much a modern digestion and repackaging of Defoe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with some nod to the fact that other cultures had pirates too. <laughs> Can, can I add to that, David? Sure. Uh, there, there's also the material circumstances of 
being a British seafarer in the 18th century? I mean, as we all know, the British Navy was not the world's most humane institution. They often conscripted people. Uh, they, they didn't pay well. They punished you. You had basically no power unless you were an officer. The pirate ship yeah. is exactly the opposite. The, the pirate ship is radically democratic from our perspective. They, mm -hmm. um, the, 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 the pirates shared everything almost entirely equally. Uh, so they did have officers who got a larger share, but it wasn't as much larger. Uh, there was very little discipline. Uh, it was considered kind of, you know, to borrow the musketeers, all for one and one for all. Uh, mm -hmm. If you have to be on a British ship in the 18th century, you could do a lot worse than being on a pirate ship. Right, right. I mean, and and a lot of the a lot a lot of that is stuff that's in Defoe too. Uh, sure, Michael. Um, and there there were exceptions, you know. There there were, which you don't want to be on Blackbeard's ship because he'll he'll just up and shoot ra people randomly. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and there there were a few other captains who were kind of known for their for their discipline. Um, but yeah, in general, it was it was much better to be a pirate. Even though you, even though your your life expectancy was a little bit lower, um, you know, it nonetheless the 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 years of that life spent before you, you know, get hung from a yardarm, um, are a lot better than the typical conscripted British uh, sailor. Absolutely, if the British Navy is rum, sodomy, and the lash, uh, the pirate ship's probably just rum and maybe sodomy. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. They, they, yeah, they don't bother lashing you on a pirate ship. They just kill you. Right, right. right. Tortuga, the island of Tortuga, that uh, an actually real island, even if it does show up in a movie. Um, one of the early governors of Tortuga imported hundreds of prostitutes in order to try to get the the, the pirates interested in women again. So, <laughs> so yeah, rum and sodomy. Well, oh the, there gosh. goes our uh, clean iTunes rating. <laughs> Just saying. Hey, we're already talking about pirates, bro. All right, all right. <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, about the only thing that I would add to all that is that, you know, again, uh, when we think of modern naval warfare where you have vessels that are entirely spoken for as far as, you know, this is an American vessel, this is a... Russian vessel. This is a British vessel. Uh, it's just an entirely different ball game there in the 17th century. So I mean, it is uh, something that stretches our imagination because you know, generally when I think of naval warfare, I'm thinking of World War II era battles uh, where everything is very tightly identified. You know, there are not that many freelancers in World War II battles, but this is you know just entirely different ball game and you're right david that you know when the crowns try to exert the sort of control that they can exert within their boundaries out on the open sea uh it just doesn't work and you know i, I think that that as well i mean because you know pirates become sort of the folk heroes of you know the 18th and 19th centuries i've got to think that that's got to have something to do with the sort of you know folk status of democratic figures in general in that period. Mm -hmm. So, well, Michael, people like it when we get literary. So let's go around the horn. We'll start with you. 
Uh, tell us about one or two of your favorite pirate stories and literature and why, why they're worth reading. Actually, Nathan, why don't you start with David, because mine are kind of subversions of the genre. Oh, uh-huh. fine. David, you start. <laughs> okay. Um, I hope I'm not stepping on anybody's toes when I name Treasure Island. I mean, it's kind of just right there. Oh, sure, sure. Go for yeah, it. Th- yeah, that was sort of the T-ball pick. <laughs> just swinging um yeah treasure island uh robert lewis stevenson um it's a really good book and it holds up uh i think it holds up pretty well um he defoe was one of his sources mm-hmm. um he he actually includes um you know one, one of his characters in Treasure Island is named after uh, one of Blackbeard's crew. Uh, Israel Hands is the man's name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, it's. I, I think it's it's worth reading, um, if for no other reason than to you know kind of get some sense of how how the the uh, how the pirate continued to retain its 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 charm and interest into um, into modernity so to speak mm-hmm. um well not early modernity but right, whatever right. yeah we're not gonna fight that well well david for a little bit of plot summary i mean tell our listeners how uh, long john silver quit the fast food fish business i mean to get into piracy <laughs> he was a sea cook so <laughs> oh there you go <laughs> is, it, is that true um, i've never read the book he was a sea cook yeah 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 <laughs> uh Treasure Island is your archetypal hunting for pirate gold story. Oh yeah. Um, the young protagonist Jim Hawkins uh is uh is left with a treasure map when the the mysterious old sailor in his family's tavern uh passes away um horribly actually. And he and some gentlemen um of of his acquaintance, the local doctor, the local squire, they uh they rustle up some some capital and outfit a ship in order to go track down the 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 gold that must be buried um underneath the x on the map <laughs> um, unfortunately they put the hiring of the crew into the hands of this you know charming old sea cook named long john silver who just seems like the most trustworthy fellow ever um, he also represents himself as a, a wounded veteran of the British Navy, incidentally, um, and keeps talking about you know na- the the naval ba- famous naval battles that he was in and so forth. So that it, it you know already in that story you're you're kind of seeing how uh, the difference between sailor and pirate is 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 very fluid and it's sometimes difficult for someone. You know, for a landlubber to tell the difference between them, because um, surprise, surprise, turns out Long John Silver is a pirate, um, and all the guys he hired to be the crew were former pirates. So that it ends up becoming the struggle against the very small, uh, uh, very small group of of sailors who remained loyal to the captain and Jim Hawkins and his friends, and the pirates led by Long John Silver. And I won't tell you how it turns out. Um, you can watch any of the, you know, movie versions or you know read the book. Um, but apparently there there was a movie version that came out last year, a couple of years ago, 
in which Eddie Izzard plays Long John Silver. I wasn't aware of that. Yeah. Yeah. Eddie Izzard plays Long John Silver and Elijah Wood is the crazy marooned man. Yeah. So <laughs> I know, oh, that's right? funny. That's funny. Yeah, so so that's a thing that exists. Right. I mean, small uh, spoiler, I mean, you know, when he does open his restaurant, it's against his uh fierce rival Captain D. Oh for crying out loud. <laughs> You, you know when the when the second when the second Pirates of the Caribbean movie came out, I was living in Omaha and I uh, took the bus every day and went past this uh, Long John Silver's restaurant. And for six months, they had a sign up outside the restaurant that said, "Real pirates eat her." <laughs> and I would pass this every morning on my way to work, and I would think, "Are pirates like?" I could not figure out what it meant. And then you know, six months later, I realized, oh. They left off the E. That's real pirates eat here. Which, I mean, I'm sure everybody everybody else figured out immediately, but I was... And, uh, cl- and we're back in Tortuga. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I was constructing these elaborate, like, yeah, cannibalism piracy stories in my head. Because that's a great ad campaign for a restaurant. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> All right, Michael. On that note, uh, what have you brought us? Uh, two semi-pirate stories from the American Renaissance. Uh, first, M- Melville's Benito Sereno, which, yeah. tells, which tells the story of the San Dominic, a slave ship that has experienced an overthrow and is now under the control of the captain's personal slave, Babo. Mm-hmm. Um, it's told from the perspective of the American captain, Amasa Delano, and he tours the ship for several hours, and he sees all these strange things are happening, but he never for a moment suspects that the San Dominic is under the control of these slaves. And as he's leaving, all hell breaks loose. The ship gets retaken. They cut off Bobo's head, put it on a pole. Uh, it is based on a real incident, and of course, uh, slave rebellions were not at all uncommon things. It is not strictly a pirate story. But I think it has certain things in common with stories of the genre. Uh, Slave vessels were very, very important for pirates because uh, they were very large and fast ships. And they also provided them with a number of pirates. We don't hear much about dark-skinned pirates. But from what Mm -hmm. I've read, uh, a full third of pirates in the 18th century were non-white. And it makes sense, right? Because that is a place Mm -hmm. where a a darker-skinned person can uh, achieve some semblance of social respect and right. uh, good treatment. Right, because the plantation ain't much better than the British Navy, as it turns out. Right. Um, what's yeah. more, the fact of the rebellion on board the ship suggests a sort of internal piracy, because instead of sailing on a pirate ship and taking over a slave ship, the slaves are forced onto the ship, which they then take, and instead of stealing gold and treasure, although they steal a little bit of that too, they steal their own lives. So it's really like the most noble form of piracy you could possibly imagine. And since mm-hmm. pirate ships were already, as I said, largely democratic, it adds a whole new dimension to the relative freedom of the pirate over and against other people in the 17th century, especially other sailors. Mm-hmm. And the other quasi-pirate story I'd like to talk about is Edgar Allan Poe's The Gold Bug, which doesn't feature any live pirates in the story, mm-hmm. but it revolves around the finding of the buried treasure of Captain Kidd. Um, he happens to have been a real Scottish pirate who may not actually have been a pirate. There is some debate over that uh his buried treasure was the stuff of legend even in the 19th century poe didn't invent the idea people had been searching for his buried treasure for centuries and poe's story which involves cryptograms and all sorts of other crazy stuff 
uh, it really reignited that particular craze, and I think there are probably people who still look for Captain Kidd's treasure. Uh, it should go without saying, by the way, most pirates didn't bother burying their treasure. They spent it before they had an opportunity to. They're right. not squirrels. I mean, <laughs> right. I don't know why they would bury their treasure. But Captain Kidd apparently did bury it. Why, why bury it when there's Tortuga? Right. I mean, Captain, yeah. Captain Kidd did bury a little bit of treasure for a small time, but nothing like the the stuff of the legends where there's just millions and millions of dollars worth of doubloons and pieces of eight buried uh, on some deserted island. Right, and from, from what I read, I mean, it was basically a failed amnesty deal. I, I, I think so. Yeah, buried some gold and turned himself in and said, if you grant me amnesty, I'll tell you where the, all that treasure I stole is. And, of course, they didn't. They kept him in jail, which is why people are still hunting for it. <laughs> well, good luck, everybody. Well, uh, yeah, there you go. Well, some of that stuff, I mean, I, I can think of one reason for, for burying stuff. Um, when you when you look at uh, Drake's first expedition, um, the Golden Hind was so loaded up with gold and such that they they started sinking. So he uh, basically jettisoned half of the treasure just to make it back to England hmm. and still got there phenomenally wealthy. So, you know, in some cases, <laughs> maybe they had to bury some of it just so they could you know, get back to Torquay. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> a good point. <laughs> just so they could float. All right. Uh, well, my pirate story uh, actually comes from the 14th century. Uh, it is from John Gower's Confessio Amantis. Uh, mm. And I, I love this story. It's in book three of the Confessio uh, when they are, you know, talking about uh, basically the nature of love, you know, which is the grand subject of that whole thing. And one of the things they discuss is uh, the love of power. So they tell this parable about uh, Alexander the Great. And of course, he was a figure of some fascination in the Middle Ages. Uh, as, as he remains in the modern era. I shouldn't pretend that we're not fascinated with him anymore. Uh, but in this story, Alexander and his army are marching along, and they happen to come upon a shipwreck uh, in which a notorious sea rover, to use the phrase from the poem, uh, has been run aground with his crew. They're taken captive by the army, and the captain of these sea rovers is brought before Alexander and Alexander asks him, you know, uh, obviously you're a pirate, I have to kill you, but what do you have to say for yourself? And the man says, look, the only reason that you are an emperor and I am a pirate is because you were born wealthy and I was born poor. Uh, had we been born in opposite circumstances, I'd be the emperor and you'd be the pirate. Uh, and Alexander is so pleased with this answer that he makes him his second in command uh, so here in John Gower, I mean, the pirate is used not as a folk hero, but as a uh, as a, satir a satirical figure, as someone who placed next to the great emperor of antiquity uh, exposes the true nature of empire. Uh, so, I mean, people talk about this episode as one of the um, pacifist parables in John Gower's Confessio Amantis. So, I mean, I... I think it's fascinating that, you know, in the 14th century, when you generally think of uh, the knight as, you know, sort of the heroic figure of the period, that, you know, here you've got this very strong satire of the armed life, specifically using the pirate as the figure of satire. 
So, it, go ahead, David. It reminds me of uh, an anecdote about uh, the the British privateers under Bess. Uh-huh. Um, that uh, they, they got a lot of criticism even within England, and Walter Raleigh uh, famously defended them by saying the only difference between what they do and what an army and navy do is that their stakes are much smaller. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> nice. So it seems like the same spirit. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and again, you know, it's interesting that, you know, what, whereas in the 19th century – uh, they become sort of revolutionary democratic figures in the 14th century. They are uh, reviled figures, but they are used to satirize revered figures. So, mm. I mean, you know, it, it's just a fascinating where, you know, it's a fascinating thing to watch their standing in the stories we tell shift over the course of time. Well, speaking of shifting and shifty figures... Uh, I wouldn't be doing this episode justice, and if my son ever listened to this, he would never forgive me if I didn't at least touch on the way that pirates have come to us in the 21st century movies. Uh, And I know that there are plenty of reasons to like and to dislike Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow and the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but uh, David, do what you like with these movies. Go wherever you want. What do the Christian humanists have to say about pirates according to Bruckheimer? Oh, I really loved the first movie. The second was incoherent. <laughs> the third... The third was 11 hours long. <laughs> <laughs> I went to no, that movie I, on a Friday night and came home on Monday afternoon. <laughs> well, I do, I do remember the last time that I saw it, it was on television, and uh, I was uh, uh, at, at the beach... And I just I kept telling I kept telling my wife, I'll go down to the beach when the movie's over, and it just never seemed to be over. I'm like, I know this is like the last act. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. For for serious commentary, um, consult someone else. No, um, no. Actually, what always struck me as odd. Can we name an actual? Is there any act of piracy actually committed by actual pirates Ooh. in the film? Yeah, Not ghost pirates. Right. Because right. they're very they're very clearly set up as the villains. I'm talking about the hero pirates. Do the hero pirates ever actually pirate? Don't hmm. they well they steal the ship, right? Oh, that barely counts. Steal, <laughs> stealing a ship barely counts as piracy? Uh, commandeer, commandeer, it's a nautical term. <laughs> No, no, I, I mean that in the sense of, you know, piracy consisted of dudes in ships attacking other dudes in ships and taking, you know, the, the aforementioned dudes taking the loot of the, you know, the other dudes, you know? I mean, yes, stealing the ship, that, you know, I guess that would count, that would count as, as under the definition of piracy, but you never actually see pirates pirate. Right, there's no merchant movies. vessels robbed in those movies. Yeah, they're... They're simply designated as pirates, hmm. and and the the antipathy of the British, uh, the British Navy, and then um, the East uh, the East India Company seems to be purely meanness. 
you're you're never given any any indication on film of why it is that the authorities would oppose these happy-go-lucky ne'er-do-well rogues who just revel in their freedom. Well, they're not they're not even love but their mommies and dads. <laughs> yeah. It is sad. I I I I don't know. That that was that was kind of the one thing that struck me about about pirates according to Bruckheimer is that they dress as pirates. <laughs> They talk like pirates. Everybody else calls them pirates. They look – they sail in things I would call pirate ships, but I never actually see them pirate. Right. You know? the, their actual piracy gets alluded to but never acted out. Yeah, and that and that to me seems to be problematic, especially when the movie decides that it's going to set up you – know, set up this sort of grand parable about you know, freedom versus authoritarianism. You know, I mean, you you should you should at least show something of the Faustian pact whereby pirates got their 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 freedom. Mm-hmm. Which which which, by the way, is very Bruckheimer. I mean, it's you know, uh, I mean, if you think of his other films, I mean, The Rock and uh, Con Air and things like that. I mean, it, it's full of those figures who are unjustly on the wrong side of the law, but turn out to be, you know, killers with hearts of gold. Can we all agree that uh, Jeffrey Rush is the best part of that movie? Oh, absolutely. Is, is yeah. Oh, yeah. Way, way better than Johnny Depp. Oh, easily, easily. Although Johnny Depp can deliver a one-liner. Say what you will about him, but I, I chuckle every time I see those movies. He's he's good. He's really good in those movies. The, pro- the problem is those movies led to this string of him wearing a bunch of crazy makeup, dancing around and saying, ooh, aren't I weird? Which I'm sure is going to reach its tragic apex with uh, his role as Tonto in The Lone Ranger. Well, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, you're referring not only to the sequels, but also to his unfortunate Willy Wonka attempt. And, you know, a dozen other movies he's made since Oh, gosh, yeah, I forgot about that one. We can't forget that all of this is preceded by Edward Scissorhands. Yeah, that's that's true. Yeah, but Edward Scissorhands didn't really deliver one-liners. No, and he doesn't have a hat. Oh, true enough. <laughs> yeah. No, no, Captain Barbosa is the best. Captain Barbosa he he he's basically a pirate who just walked straight out of Defoe. Right. You know? Right. Right. Yeah, you know, that, well, that's that's why the second one is, is so weak because he's not in it. Defoe mm-hmm. as mediated by um you know, sort of early to mid twentieth century pirate movie starring Errol Flynn. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. Well, and don't well and that's the also ride. why the that's also why the fourth one wasn't nearly as fun because they tried to turn him into this very serious wounded warrior figure. Oh, there was a fourth one. Oh yeah, yeah. Yes. That, that was actually the first one that my son saw. <laughs> Oof. You know, there's some yeah. dirty jokes in those movies. There are, there are. But I mean, they're they're pretty under underground, so I guess little kids don't notice them. No, they don't. And I mean, you know, I if, if any listeners are ready to judge me for taking my son to a PG thirteen movie, go right ahead. I, you know, I mean, this is the sort of you know rollicking action adventure that I was watching when I was a kid. It was just called Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I'm pretty sure that that you know whatever's in whatever's you know, dirty jokes are concealed in Pirates of the Caribbean are probably not any dirtier than the dirty jokes concealed in, you know, Warner Brothers cartoons. 
Oh, absolutely. Or, absolutely. In the old, or in the old ride, for that matter. I mean, the the ride before they PC'd it up was pretty uh, risque. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, well, so. I mean, the, the famous one is there's there there was a man pirate chasing a comely young woman around a barrel to do, no doubt, nefarious things to her, which they've now replaced with a less comely woman chasing the same pirate, uh, but she's waving a uh, rolling pin. Gotcha. No, not nearly ah. as much fun as the uh, the other one. <laughs> Still sexist, though. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, they kept the core of it, right? There you go. Uh, I mean, do we want to say anything about Pirates According to Flynn? I have not seen the Errol Flynn pirate movies. Okay. Uh, no, nor have I, David, so go ahead and take a run at it. You've, you've got uh, unchecked interpretational power <laughs> yeah here. you can say whatever you want we won't be able to argue with you i mean, I, I, ha- I haven't seen all of them um i've seen a couple um two worth mentioning the seahawk um came out in 1940 and it's it's the career of i th- i think he's fictional it's a it's a privateer under elizabeth named thorpe mm-hmm. who um He's very gentlemanly to the the crews and uh, passengers on the ships that he takes over. Once he's conquered them, he's very, very nice to them. Um, and it seems as if he's mainly motivated by a vendetta against the Spanish for turning their prisoners of war into galley slaves. Hmm. And so um, he, uh, he, he will be... You know he'll he'll take a sh- he takes a ship at the beginning of the of the movie, and then goes down into the hold and releases the galley slaves. Uh, for him, this is you know this is as much about releasing, um, you know about you know getting their freedom as it is about getting Aztec gold. Right. Um, right. He also very pointedly, uh, uh, when 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 Spaniards continue calling him thieves, um, he, he points out that. You know, this one particular, you know, Spanish lady happens to have some, you know, Aztec jewelry in her jewelry box and says something on the or on the lines of, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure the Aztecs were happy to give you that. Huh. So in other words, it's a continuation of that 19th century democratic instinct. Yes. Okay. Um, Interesting. Even even more so, it shows up in Captain Blood, Mm -hmm. uh, an earlier film in which he plays a doctor, an English doctor, who is uh, tried for treason because he, uh, he treats a wounded, uh, a wounded soldier who escapes from, I think, I think it's, uh, I think it's some, uh, the, some of the aftermath of the English Civil War, mm-hmm. because he, ha- he has a vendetta against James II. Um, but he, he's, a, he's, he's a doctor treating, you know, treating one of the remaining, um, you know, roundheads, I guess he gets rounded up by, uh, royalists and is sent off to Jamaica where he works on a sugar plantation along with other prisoners of war. Hmm. Um, eventually he and the other plantation slaves, uh, escape and become pirates, um, you know, attacking, attacking the ships of the king. Uh, and eventually, w- when uh, a- after the the glorious revolution, uh, he is issued a uh, he's a, he's issued a a pardon um, because now the king is George, not James. I see. 
Oh, sorry, sorry, not not George William, um, William of Orange. Right, right. Okay, yeah, I should have caught that. So, <laughs> any, anyway, um, you know, e- even there, you have the whole, you know, slaves, uh, slaves escaping, slaves becoming pirates, slaves fighting the man. Mm-hmm. Um, Bruckheimer didn't invent that; he inherited it. Right, right. Well, and, I, and I'm thinking as well. I mean, I, you know, going back to Star Wars, you know, you hear allusions throughout the good Star Wars trilogy uh, that, you know, Han Solo was this reprehensible criminal figure, but inside of the movies, you never actually see him smuggle anything. Yeah. So, I mean, I I think it's the same sort of thing. (laughs) Right, right, because, you know, it's Han Solo, right? So, I mean, again, you know, I think that that's a convention of recent movies featuring criminal figures is that you don't actually see them committing any crimes, yeah, this this isn't the Breaking Bad of piracy. No, no, and I mean that's what makes you know things like Breaking Bad and Deadwood and and you know things like that you know so shocking in in their own way is that they actually show the ambiguities within the characters. I'm not sure so, Breaking Bad has much ambiguity left. I think he's well. I, I've not seen it, so I, I can't I can't comment intelligently. But I'll uh, believe you. Oh, you have to see it. Yeah, I know. People tell me that, and I, I keep trying to talk Mary into watching it. And when we run out of Downton Abbey episodes, we very well might. But <laughs> Pre- prepare for something rather years. different. Than yeah, I, I imagine it might be. I imagine it might be. Although, like we said, like I said, we have watched The Wire and Deadwood, so we're used to rather dark views of the criminal element already. <laughs> well, okay. at any rate. Um, to expand our scope a moment, Michael, one bizarre renaissance of the pirates in the digital age, other than Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, is the term media piracy. And I always wonder about historical contingencies like this, so I do wonder why we don't really hear much about gigabyte bandits or pickpocketed software or anything of that sort. It's always movie piracy, music piracy, software piracy, pirated this, pirated that. Uh, why do you reckon are pirates to blame for declining movie and music profits you know i never really thought about this question before so i searched around (laughs) on uh in the online communities of media pirates to see what sorts of answers they came up with Uh uh-huh and so you were consorting with pirates i was yes so (laughs) i'm I'm not sure if i'm gonna uh uh, end up on the gallows or not i could taste the captain's daughter or whatever the uh the basic argument they make in favor of downloading music or movies illegally Mm -hmm. is that there's no actual theft going on because there's no physical good that is changing hands so -hmm. people aren't losing money so much as they're losing potential money and the people who would justify illegal downloading see that as a different matter altogether and i i I should say i used to download music illegally and then one day i stopped i felt guilty and i deleted it all and i stopped um so like i understand i understand the motivation at least a little bit um the consensus in the forums i looked at is that it's called piracy because the government knows that theft isn't an accurate term thus we call it piracy because it's the breaking of the law but it's not theft or pickpocketing or what have you uh that argument is nonsense it doesn't make (laughs) it's it's incoherent in, in every way 
uh-huh. b- because obviously the seafaring pirates were not making a copy of something and then taking it. Right, I mean, right. it was, if anything, <laughs> a more a copy brutal of this merchant man. <laughs> yeah, it was, it, was, it was a more brutal form of theft than pickpocketing, certainly. Uh, but looking for sense in the community of online file sharing is like looking for a clean white shirt in a pig pen. You're just not going to be able to find it. Um, <laughs> That being said, I think that they tend to see themselves as Robin Hood types. They're stealing from evil, faceless, multinational corporations, and they're spreading those artistic creations around evenly. Mm -hmm. So I think most of them are pretty proud of that term, piracy, especially since the word has uh, come back into vogue. Uh, But as far as why the government decided that was the word they were going to use, I don't know. I couldn't find an answer to that question. Did you have one in mind? No, I, I I was hoping that you could educate me on this because, of course, recently the the controversial uh, laws that they attempted to pass were the Stop Online Piracy Act. Right. And you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, you know, why would you call them pirates? Everyone likes pirates. That's Johnny Depp and Jeffrey Rush. You know, <laughs> everyone wants to be that. <laughs> well, and it's it's so hard to side with the RIAA and the uh, MPAA. They're, they're, I mean, they're just the the file sharers are right that those are evil, heartless, multinational corporations who deserve anything that's coming to them. I'm just not sure that that justifies my doing the wrong thing. Right, right. (laughs) Well, and it's interesting, too, that, I mean, you know, they've played into the pirate mythology by figuratively, at least, stringing up 12-year-olds, you know, who they've caught with downloaded music and, you know, suing them for six-digit sums and you know all those sorts of things so i mean it's almost as if they want the pirates versus the crown mythology to surround this thing yeah. right right i mean I, i'm not i'm not sure what what they're thinking either they're right they're you know they're, they're spain in the 16th century yeah, well, yeah sure. don't, don't give internet pirate drake his fox's book of martyrs seriously yeah, I... <laughs> well played well played yeah, and I and, and you know honestly, it's one of those things. Again, you know, once I started thinking of the potential counter scenarios, uh, you know, I mean, and you know, th- these would be, well, I mean, they even sa- sound odd when I try to think them, uh, but you know, I mean, if they had rendered them as uh, software pickpockets or you know digital, um, I'm trying to think of something else, you know, uh, digital burglars. Right. I mean, it it seems like that would be a less romantic figure to strike. And yet the actual congressional acts refer to piracy. So, you know, thank God they tabled those acts. I mean, I'm sure we don't need to tell anybody who's listening to this show how how SOPA went way, 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 way too far. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I. Um, again, you know, what I was mainly curious about was the linguistic yeah. contingency of it. But, you know, uh, yeah, you're right. As far as the actual policy, it was badly written policy. I, so. I mean, th- this is this is another one of those scenarios where I have nothing but contempt for both sides. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, nobody wants to support the, the uh, British government, but nobody wants to support the, uh, the, the pirates either. Not really. Right. Not actual pirates. <laughs> right. Right. But you know, uh, you know, well, the, copyright infringement has absolutely no romance. Romance to it, <laughs> right? Oh yeah, and I guess that could have been. I mean, if they'd use forgery as their controlling metaphor, which I you mean, know. Th- really, that would be, I think, the most appropriate thing to call it. 
Right, right. But again, I mean, that's not where they went. They went to pirates. Now so, yeah. they used to. Do they still call, do they still refer to a lot of the stuff as bootleg? Uh, bootleg, at least in music, meant a recording that was not authorized, rather than an right. authorized recording that's been stolen. Right. In movies okay. as well. Yeah. So yeah, but again, that's another romantic figure, right? Because that's the anti-prohibition, you know, right. Uh, right. booze runner, right? You know, that's the the proto NASCAR driver. <laughs> Which, by the way, I, I don't know if you guys knew that. That was actually the roots of stock car racing. Was they would uh, modify their automobiles to outrun the cops during prohibition. I learned that at Dollywood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And actually, one of the uh, early centers for that was none other than uh, Johnson City, Tennessee, where Al Capone did have hideouts they discovered in the 90s when they demolished some of the older buildings in town and discovered hidden passages and such. That cat got around. You know, he ran uh, Minneapolis, too. Well, there you go. Maybe maybe this is an episode coming up soon. (laughs) The salute to Al Capone. Yeah, you know, maybe I can do Pirates and Gangsters this year, you know, since I... We'll crack open Al Capone's ball fault. You know. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Uh, well, at any rate, guys, to, to uh, wrap this thing up, uh, I'll, I'll start with you, David. Uh, what, if anything, can we say theologically about our fascination with pirates? Is this a symptom of some sin of which we should repent? Is this an ongoing urge to be free of the powers of this present darkness? even if it means sailing around with Johnny Depp, uh, does it mean something else that I'm missing entirely? Uh, get theological for us for a bit and then pass it on to Michael. Um, I think I would get theological by first getting Miltonic. Because um, it's, it's, it seems to me that an awful lot of the sort of Robin Hood freedom atmosphere around pirates that you see in movies um, like Pirates of the Caribbean, but also in, you know, the earlier Errol Flynn uh, films, it has, it's it's almost kind of a, a, a satanic freedom, as it were, you know, that there's, there's the rhetoric of we're free and we're equal and, and we're, you know, we're no longer subject to the man and now we can choose our own fate and, you know, better to reign on the high seas than to serve in a sugar plantation, um, and so forth. But uh, but again, the 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 fascination with pirates, the 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 movie pirate, keeps hiding the fact that it's piracy. Keeps hiding the victims. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's presented as essentially victimless and also presented as essentially uh, a, a a moral nullity to the people who engage in it. Um, okay, Jack Sparrow, he's a bad person. But you don't necessarily think that Legolas – I've even forgotten his character's name. You don't necessarily <laughs> think that Will he's Turner. a worse – Thank you, Will Turner. You don't think he's a worse person at the end of that series. Mm-hmm. You think he's a, maybe a, a, a less happy person, <laughs> right? Perhaps a less silly person, but even then, barely. But <laughs> you don't think of him as a terrible person. Same thing about Errol Flynn. Errol Flynn can dip in and out of piracy in those films, 
and he's still the he's still he seems untouched by it. Um, but that's not true of historical pirates like, well, like uh, Black Bart, very very famously uh, Bartholomew Roberts. Um, I don't know, maybe he's the Dread Pirate Roberts. Uh huh. Who was who was very famously devout. Um, him singing very strict on his crew, but when his crew bullied him into turning to piracy, he went whole hog and became a butcher. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, it, it, it's, it seems to me that if, if we take this on theologically, um, to me it becomes a meditation on the pretentiousness of sin that sets itself up as a kind of freedom but wants to gloss over the way it ends up hurting others and the way it ends up hurting yourself. Hmm. But that's because I'm judgmental and stuff. <laughs> Killjoy. Yeah, I know. Sorry. Michael, what have you got? I was going to say something very similar. I mean, I think you're the one who invoked the Faustian bargain earlier, and it seems um, it's, it really seems that's that's what piracy yeah. is in, in both its ancient and its, its modern forms. And as the, uh, I mean, we didn't talk about them, but as the Somali pirates mm. um, operating today show us, there's really nothing romantic about it. It is cruel and violent and ugly and, you know. I mean, the question is, are we somehow wrong to romanticize old-fashioned piracy? Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know if I have an answer for that. Certainly want to be careful. Yeah. We forget the actual historical circumstance at our peril. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if, if I could wrap things up, you know, I would say that, you know, just trying to return to that Greek root, you know, that Greek uh, parotene, you know, to test or to tempt or to put in peril... Uh, you know, I mean, I think there is something about modern industrial and post-industrial life that makes that a special temptation for us. Uh, something that, you know, we look at and we say, well, you know, this is roaming the high seas. There's no day jobs. There's no paychecks. There's nothing like this. Uh, you know, I think the same sort of thing happens. And we've already mentioned these other genres. Uh, with cowboys and with Star Wars, which is sort of pirates and cowboys and laser guns and <laughs> samurai and, you know, hokey ancient religions all rolled into one. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think, again, that, you know, one of the things that is good about this genre is that it does take our imaginations out of the everyday world that we inhabit, uh, even if it is within those literary genres romanticizing it. I think the danger, as Michael and David already mentioned, the danger is that uh, if we start to think of that as more real than the brutality that actually accompanied, you know, both Wild West outlaws and high seas piracy, um, if we forget those and we start to romanticize them, then we are tempted to romanticize other forms of violence. And, you know, that's always something that uh, lies right right in front of us, you know? So I, I, I think I'm going to join the downer that those two started and make it a trio of downers to wrap this up. Uh, on that bleak note, your son is uh, a, your son is a horrible person is what I'm saying for liking pirates. Oh, okay. There we go. There we go. Probably <laughs> going to grow up and be a sociopath. Well, I, hey. I, 
I'm not, I'm not taking that bait, farmer. So I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah, th- this is why. This is why I pitched Treasure Island. The protagonists of Treasure Island are not the pirates. The pirates are the enemies. Oh, there you go. There you go. You get you get to see them being all awesome and piratey, but you also get to see them being terrible and know that they are to be countered. Jim Hawkins is tempted by piracy, but ultimately resists that temptation. So there you go. Um, at any rate, uh, like I said, I'm going to walk by Michael's bait here and say thank you to both Mike, Michael Farmer and David Grubbs this morning. Uh, next week, uh, which for us is actually a week and a half, but for you listeners, it's still a calendar week. Uh, Michael, what are we doing we're going to talk about realism, mostly in its literary, but perhaps in its visual artistic form as well. Very hmm. cool, very cool. Until then, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org on the web. You can find us on iTunes, where you can leave us five-star ratings so that more people see us when they search for such things and write reviews for us. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, where we invite you to bring your friends along, tell them about us. We are almost up to that magical 150 thumbs up mark. So we got three the during along. the show. We had three during the show. That's yeah. amazing. Um, beyond that, if you want to contact us directly, you can do so at the Christian humanist at gmail.com. And we will try to read any emails that you send on the air. Uh, until next time, this is Nathan Gilmore on behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubb saying, let your sin be strong. Let your faith be stronger. R. Who wrote those lines on the wall? Let's retrace where they scrawled ancient characters. As two and your sisters slip, it falls. Oh
victims all around you The combined love forms a pool Your knives reflected in And now I'm ready to With my throat to you On this mountain By this moon What I want for most to do Is prove I'm not like them 